Let me introduce you to Jesus. He longs to be your Savior and Lord. He'll be your King. And he'll be your friend. Whatever you expect, he'll be more. He's the shout that calls the dead to life again. He's the bread that multiplies to meet your need. He's the midnight calm in the lion's den. He's the shepherd who goes searching for the sheep. He's the hand that reaches out to rescue you. When the waves are growing higher. And he's the fourth man who's always there beside you. When you're walking through fire Every life will have its share of trouble But oh, that's when you find Him so close and If you fall, He will carry you Every time you need him the most He's the shout that calls the dead to life again He's the bread that multiplies to meet your needs He's the midnight calm in the lion's den He's the shepherd who goes searching for the sheep. And he's the hand that reaches out to rescue you. When the waves are growing high. And he's the fourth man who's always there beside you. When you're walking through fire He's the victory cry that causes wars to fall And he's the song that rises from a prison And he's the love and grace that will bear your cross And he's the story of redemption that you and every time you offer up a desperate prayer, He will be your heart's desire. And He's the fourth man who's always there beside you when you're walking through fire. When you're walking through fire
Amen. Thank you, Byron. Such a good song. Well, we want to welcome to East Hillsville Baptist Church this morning. And before we officially welcome you, I need to mention just a couple things to you. Um, there'll be no Awana this church year. We'll try to start that back up in um, September for the, for the next church year. Our church year runs from August to September. Um, so keep that in mind. Also, want to mention that tonight's Bible study that we're going to be starting. It's a 10-week study um, by David Jeremiah. It'll start at 5 p.m., and we'll meet in Steve Lackey's uh, Sunday School class, which is the Co-Ed 6 class. And also, we want to mention that we're going to have a baptismal service on January the 30th. So we have probably four or five people that I know for sure need to be baptized. And if you uh, are a person, you're a candidate for baptism, please contact the church office between now and then, or you can contact any of the staff and let us know. We'd really appreciate that, all right? And I'm going to ask you to stand with me and welcome one another to the Lord. Without shaking hands, say hey to people. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask Adam and Amber Mays to come forward with their son, Hunter. This boy's got a head of hair, don't he? Turn around and show everybody, Hunter. Hey, buddy. I want to thank you guys so much for being here this morning and um, uh, appreciate your willingness to dedicate your child to the Lord. Uh, I want to welcome Adam's family. His mom and dad are here and the rest of his family. So wel I want to welcome you guys also. And Amber's dad, Freddie. Freddie Brock, he's in Kuwait. So hey, Freddie. I want to say hey to Freddie this morning. He's in Kuwait, so remember him and your prayers. He's serving our country this morning, uh, and Hunter's waving at you right now. But uh, I want to thank um, Adam, you and Amber. Amber, I've watched you grow up here, been very faithful to the church, and Adam, we've been friends a long time, and I'm very honored to be your pastor and really appreciate your service here as well. And I want to share this uh, Bible verse that I know it'll really be near and dear to your heart. Listen to what the Bible says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. So God, I, would, I say this quite often at baby dedications. Every child is a gift from God. And the purpose of this dedication today is the first covenant you're going to make before God and your family and friends is that, Adam, you're going to love your wife. And Amber, you're going to love your husband. You're going to love Jesus. And you're going to raise this little fellow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So that said, I'm going to ask you this question. If it's the desire of your heart, respond by saying, we do or I do. In presenting Hunter to the Lord, do you promise through God's grace and the help of the church to teach your child the truths of the Christian faith? Do you also promise through prayer, word, and example to bring Hunter up in the nurture, discipline, and instruction of the Lord? And also, church, we ask you to make a covenant as well. Many of you will have Hunter in extended session, nursery, uh, as he grows up, probably a WANA student ministry. Uh, so I'd like to ask you a question as well. Do you promise to provide spiritual instruction for Hunter by giving of your time, talent, and resources to help him come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And do you promise to pray for Adam and Amber as they seek to raise Hunter in the fear and admonition of the Lord? We do. Thank you very much. We have several things we want to give you this morning. First, we have a little uh, ETBC student ministry um, t-shirt. We have a Bible, and they're all Carolina blue because we're Christians. Amen. And we'll give that to you. We have a certificate of dedication. I like to mention this as well. This is not just for kids. This is the Lamb's Book. It's probably one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that you can have. So um, we, uh, we give these to each parent. If, if, you're, if you have a child 
and you come to us and say that we, we think our child's a, a Christian, well, we're going to have you go through the Lamb's book first because it's such a clear presentation of why Jesus Christ had to die. So we're going to give you that. And also, this is something that I've been doing for years, and this is a letter for Hunter. This is not your letter. And it's sealed, and this is for the day that he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Whether he's five years old or 55 years old, this is his letter. So we're going to give you that as well. And now we're going to pray for Hunter's salvation. Uh, Hunter may grow up and make a lot of money. He may be famous, but nothing's more important than his relationship with Jesus. Amen. So let's pray together for his salvation. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for Adam and Amber. Lord, I want to thank you for their marriage. Father, I pray that you would bless them. Father, we thank you for Hunter. Lord, he is a precious gift. And Father, today as a church, we pray for his salvation. Father, we pray that you'd save him at a young age and use him for your honor and your glory. And I pray that because of his birth, Father, the name of Jesus would be glorified and his kingdom would be expanded. And Father, we ask this in the precious name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said together, Amen. Well, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Thank you, guys. Love you. God bless you. Love you all. Song this morning.
Good morning. I want to invite you this morning to come and, 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 and have a time of prayer. There's a lot of people in need. We need to pray for our nation this morning. We need to pray where we're at in life in this new year and what we may face. We can't face it alone. We need the Lord's help. So I want to invite you to come and join me at the altar, and then we'll have prayer. Thank you. says in Ephesians 6 18 praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints the scriptures called us to pray one for another let's do that this morning you mentioned that we want to remember Fred Bumgarner he's been taken to the hospital that's Frankie Bumgarner's dad I've known Fred for a long time I want you to lift him up in prayer I want you to pray for Dinah Purser this morning Donna's not well. She's in the hospital. And there's others that are in great need this morning that you may know of. The Bible says we're to pray one for another. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you that you intercede for us. Lord, you said in Romans 8 that you intercede for us and we can't even pray for ourselves. And Father, we're so grateful that you're always interceding on our behalf. And Father, we pray for those in need this morning. God, those who are facing difficulty that we know nothing about. Lord, there's people in our lives, there's families, loved ones that we know, and friends. Lord, we want to pray for Fred this morning. God, that you just raise him up and be with him. And Father, we pray this morning for Dinah as she's at the hospital. And Father, we pray you just give her grace and comfort and peace for every moment. Father, we want to thank you this morning that you love us. God, we want to thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate who you are this year in our lives. For Father, without you, we can do nothing. Without you, we have no hope. We pray for the church this morning. Father, help us to stand up. Help us to be a difference in the world that we live in. May people see Jesus in us in this life that we live. And Father, we love you. We pray you'd bless this time. We pray you'd bless this service. And Father, we bring you honor and glory and praise. For you're worthy of all these things. And Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
and you may be seated. Praise you. 
Amen. Thank you, Amanda. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. The last three weeks, we've been looking at the baby in the manger. And we looked at the first week that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We looked at the deity of Christ. And then the next week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then last week, we looked at the fact that this baby who grew up, died on a cross, rose from the dead, is coming back. And then today, we're going to look, or the next two weeks, we're going to look at the fact that this baby in the manger is the judge. He's the judge of the saved and the lost. And this morning, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus will save or will judge every lost person uh, from eternity. So if you'll stand with me, let's look at verses 11 through 15. W.A. Crizzle said this when he preached on this passage from First Baptist Dallas. He said, there could be no more solemn passage to be read in the entire Word of God than this passage. Nor is there a more somber message to which the pastor could address himself than this message encompassed in this passage this morning. Strong words from one of the greatest preachers to ever live. Notice what the Bible says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. Lord, these passages of Scripture should challenge each and every Christian in here this morning to share the gospel. To not waste time. 2022 is a new year. And I wonder how many of us last year 365 days, refused to share the gospel. Lord, what we're reading now is very true, and it's going to happen. And Father, as your church, you've called us to keep people from going to this, this place. And Father, if there's anyone here today who's never placed their faith and trust in you, I pray that today, through the Holy Spirit, the preached word, and prayers of many of their family and friends, that they would surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and be born again. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you for the things that you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Unless a person puts his faith in Christ, he will stand before Jesus at the great white throne. This is the judgment of the lost. And will be judged unworthy of spending eternity with God. Speaking 2,000 years ago, notice what Paul says to a group of philosophers on Mars Hill. He was speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoics. They brought him in to to speak, and they said, let's hear what this man has to say. And Paul talked about the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified, and he rose from the dead. And Paul says something like this, I see that you guys are spiritual. You have a God for everything. And then they kind of mocked at Paul, kind of made fun of the thought that somebody would, raise, would rise from the dead. And then Paul says this, talking about God, for he has set a day. We talked about that last week. Last week we talked about the day that Jesus comes back. Well, this is the day when he will judge the world. He set a day when he will judge the world. Notice how he's going to judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And Paul was telling these, uh, 
very spiritual but lost, the intellectual elite of his day, with great boldness and truth, there is coming a day when God will judge the lost, and the one who rose from the dead has the right to judge, and that is Jesus. So as we come to this text today, there are four aspects about this scene that I want us to notice. And the first one is this. Notice the throne. Notice verse 11. The Bible states clearly. Notice what it says. Then I saw a great, notice the Greek word, white, notice the Greek word, throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven, notice the word fled away. This takes us back to last week's message where Peter says that all the elements, all the things that are lined up in order, will be caught on fire one day, and they'll burn up. And one, one uh, scholar put it this way, the way this word in the Greek is used after the word fled predicts the departure of the old creation. The word pictures a sudden and violent termination of the physical universe, which Peter talked about last week. He says, it lets us know that the great white throne judgment of the unbelievers from all of human history takes place between the close of the millennial reign of Christ, which is a thousand years, and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, which is in Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore we read of this terrifying event that seals the doom of the unredeemed taking place in a courtroom suspended in limitless space. If there is any doubt of accountability before God, the Bible is now vindicated in its repeated warnings. David said this in Psalm 9, verses 7 through 8. God has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness, and he will execute judgment of the peoples with equity. Notice, thing, notice the first thing about this throne. There are nearly 50 times in the book of Revelation that the word throne is mentioned. Here we see in, in, verses, in chapters 4 and 5, you see a rainbow around the throne, lightnings and thunderings and flashings, you see, uh, you see the angels, the 24 elders, and they're all worshiping God. This is different. This is a great white throne. And it will be the final vindication of the character of God before the unredeemed that God has always kept his word. His word is always right, and it is always just and true. Notice the word great. It's where we get the word mega. This is a mega throne. That's how John wants to describe it. John says, I saw a mega throne. It is awesome, it is fearful, it is a great throne because of the glory of the holy of his majesty. This is the only court ever convened by the one whose jurisdiction is the universe. Not only is this throne great, but this throne is white. The Greek word symbolizes absolute purity of his holiness and authority. Which means this, this throne overrides every decision on earth, power and authority. Its verdict is final. There are no appeals. It's the greatest courtroom in the history of the world. All of the judgments are perfect, and there's no injustice there. Now notice what he says. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it. Him, which is Jesus. The Bible says this in Colossians 3.1 about Jesus. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says that. Peter says this, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. One of the unique functions of God the Son that we talked about last week is that Jesus is going to judge the saved and the lost. MacArthur put it this way, because Jesus is both God and man, he is the perfect judge of mankind. His judgment will be fair and perfectly just and not subject to appeal. He is not like sinful human rulers who at times judge unfairly and seek to fulfill their own agendas. Your judgment day, if you're lost, will be completely just and fair. 
Jesus said in John 5, 22, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Peter, preaching about Jesus rising from the dead in Acts 10, said this, Jesus ordered us to proclaim to the people and to solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. One scholar put it this way, When believers are judged at the Bema seat, Christ will judge believers not on their sin or sins that we've committed, but on things that God has given us to do and rewards will be given in accordance to that. In contrast, unbelievers will be judged by Christ at the great white throne. Again, this judgment has nothing to do with their eternal destiny at this point. Unbelievers have already sealed their fate by rejecting Christ. The great white throne judgment determines the severity of the unbeliever's punishment based on what they did in life. Your life matters. So we see the throne. It is a great white throne. We see who sits on it. Now notice the summons in verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. And there was found no place for them, meaning there was a lot of people. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Listen to this. It will make no difference whether the bodies and souls of unbelievers have been separated by death for one day or 5,000 years. No matter where they died or how widespread the remains of their bodies, their souls in Hades will be reunited with their resurrected bodies. The ancients of John's day believed that if someone died at sea or had their ashes tossed into the waves of the ocean, that even the gods would never be able to put them back together for an afterlife. This is one of the reasons the Egyptians mastered mummifying their leaders, keeping the body together as much as they could so that nothing would be disturbed in the afterlife. According to John's revelation that God gave him, the God of creation is no Egyptian, Babylonian, Indian, or American God. He will be able to summon unbelievers, regardless of how they died, from all eternity. Notice who's going to be there, the small. That means just insignificant people. People that nobody knew about. People that nobody cared about, but they were lost. Then the great, famous people, folks who many lived a life of ease, great people that anybody, everybody knew. I, I like what one scholar says. He says there's going to be four types of people at this great white throne. He said there's going to be people that just who love their sin more than Jesus. People who said, I'm going to live this lifestyle, and I know I need to be saved, but I'm going to choose this lifestyle over relationship with Christ. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said this, do not be deceived. And then he made this statement about different people and the sin that they chose. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and this is out of the NIV, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul is saying is this. These people chose their lifestyle over Jesus. They chose immorality over Jesus. Then he says this, but they all could have been saved because he makes this point. He says, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what? God would tell us is this, some people for their whole lives, even though they know the truth of the gospel, choose their sin over Jesus. And those people will be here. Think about the atheists. Atheism is big business today. Since probably the mid-90s, atheism has grown and grown and grown in acceptance. If an atheist writes a book on anything, a lot of people buy it. They're quoted in colleges and seminaries. They always get on news stations and talk about their beliefs. You have people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, all these people speak and speak and speak about how 
they, they're very proud to be an atheist, and that's their right. All right? I'm not name-dropping, I'm just telling you. These people will be here on this day. Think about other well-known atheists, unless they were saved before they died, and only one I'm going to mention uh, died. And think about Pat Tillman, who left the Arizona Cardinals to go serve his country. Very noble cause. But by his own admission, he was an atheist. You don't go to heaven because you serve your country. You don't. You don't go to heaven because you give your life for your country. You go to heaven because you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Dana White, I love the UFC. Very outspoken atheist. As far as I know, his wife's a strong Christian, and I pray for his salvation. Lance Armstrong, live strong. Tour de France, very outspoken atheist. All right, very outspoken. Pray for his salvation. Kevin Bacon, unless he just recently got saved. I could go on and on and on and name all these people, and the reason I name them is because they're very outspoken about their atheism. Atheists, you'll be there on that day. Think about this. Every major religion and cult will be represented. Paul said this to the church at Galatia. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let them be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have heard, let them be accursed. There's one gospel. There's one faith. There's one Jesus who rose from the dead. Every other major religion and cult is wrong, and they'll be represented on this day. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think about this. Peter, before the Sanhedrin, he said, Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone, talking about Jesus, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in his Son will not perish and have everlasting life. The opposite of that is whoever does not believe in his Son will perish. Romans 10.9, Paul tells us how to be saved. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Every major religion and cult will be represented on that day. And then think about this. Think about all the lost church members in America and throughout the world. That's why God constantly uses terms like this. Wheat, tares, sheeps, goats. And last week I made mention to... Jesus' great parable, the parable of the dragnet, where Jesus says the end of time is like a fisherman sending out this great dragnet, gathering everything that there is and bringing it to the shore. Then Jesus made this amazing statement. He interprets the parable for his disciples. And this is how Jesus says that these are the red letters. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, and some translations say the angels come and sit down, take a seat, and separate... The righteous, those that are born again, from the wicked, and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me read that again. Jesus said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what Jesus is saying is this. There will be a clear division on that day. You and I may not know who is the Son of God or who is the Son of the devil, but Jesus Christ will have no 
difficulty from identifying the good from the bad. Listen to what John MacArthur says about this parable. He says, think about this. The dragnet is, is the parable Jesus uses, pulled to the shore. And lying there at the edge of the water is this recently drawn massive net. And it is literally soaking and teeming with life, filled with a conglomerate of creatures taken from the water. And then begins a very slow, deliberate, careful, patient, unhurried, accurate, knowledgeable, skillful process of sorting out the good from the bad. The angels sat down. It was something they did very carefully, very patiently, and they never get it wrong to separate the righteous from the wicked. Only God knows the good from the bad. Not only will it be a clear division, it will be a permanent division. One scholar put it this way, there will be no opportunity for change after your death. Your death decides your permanent destiny. Either you die and you fall asleep in Christ and wake up in His presence, or you die in your sins, in your rebellion, in your unbelief, and no one can go from hell to heaven once He dies. Jesus made it, put it this way at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, on that day, there's that word again, that day or a day, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty many works in your name? Jesus said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So you may know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? You may know Christ, but does Christ know you? So you see the throne, you see the summons, and then notice it's very interesting, the books that are open. Notice what verse 13 says. It makes this statement. And books were open, and the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. We're not told how many books got opened or what these books are, but one person put it this way. The first observation I want to make is this. Not only is man accountable to God, but God has been keeping track of your life. He goes on to say this, these books contain, God, contain God's precise and accurate record for every life. God has been keeping inscrutable books. The omniscient God who sees all and knows all has been recording in his books every thought, every word, every deed of every unsaved person who has ever lived. Every sin is recorded. Every useless word has been written down in permanent ink by God himself. Every selfish deed, every sensual thought, every smutty joke, every carnal comment, all that the sinner should have done and failed to do, all that he should not have done but did, everything that the sinner thought that no one else saw, no one else knew about, every, even sin since long forgotten by the persons will be presented in that day in court. Skeletons will come dancing out of the closets. Everything that was done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops on that last day. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 12. Every careless word that men shall speak that shall get render account for in the day of judgment. Why? Because God is going to give an accurate assessment of your life. Everything about your salvation is a legal term. I've said this before. Sanctification, justification, all these things, election, all these are legal terms. Legal terms. When the day comes for the lost to be judged, it's going to be based on a courtroom setting and legal terms will be used. God's going to open a book and you'll give an account of your life. He goes on to say this, lest someone think this is a mass judgment and that God does not really focus on one person at a time, verse 12 could suggest the language of verse 13 clarifies individual judgment. Verse 13 says this, The sea gave up the dead who are in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who are in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. 
Each one, according to his works. Each individual lost person will stand before Jesus Christ and the books of their life will be opened and they will, he will give them an honest assessment of their life and a just verdict will be rendered for all eternity. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's throughout Scripture. Matthew 16, 27 says, Jesus says this, The Son of Man is going to come in His glory, in the glory of His Father, and will then repay every man, each one, according to his deeds. Paul wrote in Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each person individually according to his or her deeds. This moment, when it will occur, no longer bound by the normal structures of time and space, God will individually confront every unbeliever with irrefutable evidence that calls for a guilty verdict and an everlasting sentence. Understand that this courtroom is not, determined, is not to determine whether a person is going to be sent to hell. The person is here because he's already going there. This judgment is not weighing their good deeds and their bad deeds to see if they had enough good deeds to go to heaven. They are being judged by their deeds so that the degree of their punishment can be determined, proven, and sentenced. Eternity is not like t-ball where everyone gets a trophy regardless of whether you win or lose. See, when I was growing up, back in the 70s, y'all remember those days when you had a phone that hung on the wall and had a cord about 20 foot long where you could go in the other room and talk? But when I played t-ball, if you lost, you lost. We kept score. All right? And you didn't get a trophy just because you showed up and put a uniform on. In, in the day of judgment, think about this for a moment. Every person's deeds will be judged if you're lost. Jesus told the, the, the city of Capernaum, where he did many of his works, and the Bible says that people lack faith. He says, woe unto you, Capernaum, if the works that I did here were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would, they would have repented in uh, dust and ashes. He said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than Capernaum. And what Jesus would tell us is this. It'll be more tolerable probably for a lot of people out there in the community who have never heard of the gospel than for people who have. God is going to give a good, honest, just assessment because the books will be opened. Then he talks about another book, the book of life. Think about that. The only book mentioned that is given a title is the last book, the book of life. If someone's name, back in Jesus' day, if there was a kingdom and someone's name was not written on the roll of, of the city, then they were not allowed into, inside the city gates because the king had a, had a very accurate census of who belonged in his kingdom. And if somebody came from another country or another city and they weren't on the roll, they were not allowed in. Paul said this, that we are citizens of heaven. In Ephesians 2, 19, he says, So then you are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints of God's household. Paul goes on to tell the church at Philippi, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Those whose names are not in this book, Christ will deliver an unpardonable eternal sentence. It is a sentence of banishment from the kingdom, his kingdom, and God has a right to do that. It says in verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Luke mentions this in his gospel. Whenever Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, they went out and did amazing things. Jesus said, you're going to heal the sick. You're going to cast out demons. And then they came back and they were bragging. Well, they were happy. They weren't so much bragging. They, were said, they even said this, Even the demons were subject to us in your name, Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. 
in Luke 10, 20. He says, Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, a legal transaction took place. You were considered justified before God for all eternity, and your name was written by God himself in the Lamb's Book of Life. And your name at this moment is either there or it's not. And if it's not, notice what the sentence says for all unbelievers. Verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That word cast means to throw away, to wad up, to toss away forever. Jesus tells us how long this punishment is. In Matthew 25, verse 46, notice what he says. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look at the two words eternal. They both mean the same thing. Just as eternal life is forever, eternal punishment, whatever God deems that to be for that person, is forever. Forever. Now think about that for a moment. How much should that encourage a born-again Christian to share his faith with a lost person? You ever get intimidated sharing your faith? I don't know if you've ever heard the name Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. He's a very uh, popular magician. Uh, he's, he's, he's a popular atheist as well. A very uh, well-spoken opponent of the Lord, if you will. His TV shows, he gets a lot of good ratings. All right, Very articulate person when he speaks. He said he was doing a show, I think it was out in California. And after the show, he, he said, Teller went off somewhere and Penn said, I was just standing there and people were coming up getting, getting my autograph. And he said, there was a guy dressed in a business outfit and he had a book in his hand. All right? He had a book in his hand and he just waited very patiently. And Penn said this, he was the last guy. He said, sir, come up here. You've been waiting very patiently. He said, he said how can I help you? You got a book? He said, yeah, this is a Gideon's Bible, just like I gave Hunter this morning. And he said, I'm a Gideon. I'm a born-again Christian. And he shared his faith. And he said, Penn, I want to tell you, basically what he said in paraphrases, place your faith in Jesus, hell's forever. Now think about that. Penn's a very intimidating personality, right? How do you think he responded? I want every Christian to listen to this. Every Christian in here. This is what this lost atheist said. He made this statement. He put it on his YouTube channel, okay? A lot of people watch it. He said this. He said, people ask me how I felt about this. He said, I, I felt great respect for this man. Now listen, he talked about how the man was very nice, kind, gentle, and articulate, and a little bit nervous. But he said this, he said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize would be our word. Now listen, this is an atheist. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He don't respect you at all. If you believe there's a hell and you don't love people enough to share Jesus with them, he goes on to say this, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. Now listen to what this atheist said. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate your neighbor not to tell them about Jesus? How much do you have to hate your kids not to share Jesus? How much do you have to hate your dad or your mom not to share Jesus? I've had people all the time say, hey, listen, my dad's lost. He's a very tough guy. What do I do? And I always say this, tell him about Jesus. Real simple, isn't it? How much do you have to hate your dad not to share the gospel? There's an atheist in America today that would say he has more respect for a person 
who is socially awkward and takes that step and shares Jesus than somebody that don't. Now think about this. You don't got to tell me. How many people did you share Jesus with last year? Think about all the lost people in Alexander County you came in contact with. How many times have you shared your faith? How many relationships do you have with lost people? How many people are going to be in God's kingdom because of your stand, bold stand for the truth, and it is the truth. That's why Paul told us, speak the truth in love. Be gentle with those that are on the outside. Let your speech be with grace and seasoned with, with grace, basically is what he's saying. But you should share it. There's a popular piece of art in America today. If you'll show this on the screen, this is how we're going to close. I'm going to ask your musicians to come. This is the thinker. Look at that. I've seen this on things a thousand times. And I remember when I was doing a little bit of stuff, I thought, what is this guy thinking about? You know, it's used by all kinds of people, and they give their ideas, but what, what was the original intent behind this? It's, it's done by August Roden, and he, he uh, basically is responsible for the great work, The Gates of Hell. And he said, I made this piece of this man called The Thinker, and literally where The Thinker sets, there's this great, piece of artwork. You see all these people and it's his depiction of hell. And all these people in hell. And then there's a thinker sitting on top of it. And you know what he's doing? Contemplating the fate of every lost person in his own. The thinker. I want you to do that this morning. If you're here today and you're lost, this invitation, I would encourage you to place your faith and trust in Jesus. God knows all about you. He loves you. Ask the Lord to forgive. Say, Lord, I repent of my sin of trusting in myself and I trust in the resurrected Christ and be born again today. I'm not going to call you to come down front. You're an adult. I'm not going to beg you to be saved either. You're an adult. All right? Then every Christian in here, I want you to think about something today. Is the gospel real? Is, is Revelation 20, verse 11, 15 real? You know what that does? That changes my bank account. It sure has. I'll give to the gospel any day. I'll give to any church that preaches, preaches the Bible any day. Change my bank, change my weekends because of this. It, it, it changed my friendship role, trust me, a lot when the Lord saved me. Because I have to tell you about Jesus. I have to. It changed my whole life when I would think about the fate of my loved ones, my family members. It changed my prayer life, and it still does. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus? We should have hundreds of evangelists in this church this morning. Some of you have been saved a lot longer than I have. And many of us have probably never hardly ever shared our faith or don't even know how. Shame on us, people. I want you to think with a thinker this morning. As Bev plays with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I would encourage you now to ask the Lord to save you. Today is a day of salvation, Paul said to the church at Corinth. Be saved today. Being a member of a church will not save you. Faith in Christ saves. And if you're here today and you're lost, make a commitment today to be an evangelist for the Lord. God's called us all to share our faith. Some of us have been working with people for five, ten years, and we know they're lost. We've never shared our faith. Shame on us. 
Say, Lord, give me the boldness to share my faith. Make a commitment today to share your faith with the lost. Father, as we come to you in prayer, Lord, I pray that these verses in your word would burn into our hearts and our minds. And Father, I pray that it would never leave us. And Father, I pray that we would have the boldness and the love for another person to have a conversation about Jesus. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, that just means you have a conversation about Jesus. That's all that means. You don't leave it up to us to save anybody. We just share the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would make a commitment today to share our faith with the lost. Father, if anyone's here today lost, I pray that you'd save them even now for your honor and for your glory. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as Sharon leads us in this song?